If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 11. We're continuing on in our study through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. So if you have no idea where the Gospel of John is, that is A-OK. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's not a sin to use it. Go to the middle of your Bible, start turning to the right. You'll hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Then look for the big number 11. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. And then we're going to start at the very first verse where the little number 1 is. And so we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word open this morning as we look at this Gospel account. Now remember, the way the Bible works, the Old Testament says someone's coming, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel accounts say someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again. And so we are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel. So that says someone's here right now. So we're looking at the person and work and ministry of Jesus, the one who was promised in the Old Testament. We're seeing his life and ministry right now. That's kind of where we are. And so as you're opening up to John chapter 11, let me tell you the story of one of my favorite singer-songwriters is a man named Andy Gullihorn, who is out of Nashville, Tennessee. And by his own admission, Andy Gullihorn says that he's a guy that writes boring songs about normal, everyday life. And, but his mix of skillful guitar playing, and he's just a wordsmith, it brings the normal to life. And even though Gullihorn has yet to achieve mainstream status, he even sings a song like where he says, you know, I used to try to write the songs that all the college girls would sing, but he said, I basically figured out I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that writes, like, the boring, normal songs. And even though he has yet to achieve mainstream status, I would guess the overwhelming majority of you have never heard of him. His words have been a great source of comfort to me over the years. And the, reason, the, the question we ask is, why? Why? Often the songs written about stuff we all experience are the most powerful because we can identify with them, and they give us the words that we often lack to describe what we feel or remind us of something bigger than ourselves. You can think about the power that like a good song has. In many ways, you, you hear that song and it might hit you at that moment where you're like, yes, that's how I feel. And you're thankful for these poets and these songwriters that put what you feel into words and you're able to identify it and go, yeah, that's my life. That's what I feel like right now. I found this great quote by Jane Kenyon, who wrote, The poet's job is to put into words those feelings we all have that are so deep, so important, and yet so difficult to name, to tell the truth in such a beautiful way that people cannot live without it. What a great definition of what a poet's job is, to take these things that we don't really know how to express them and to express them in a way that we remember them and go, I don't know how I ever lived life without having that described to me in that way. And this morning, we're going to read about something that we all have a hard time talking about, especially in polite Southern culture, and that is the topic of, of sickness and death. It's something that we all have experienced, something we all will experience, and often we have a hard time talking about it because we don't know the words to uh, use to describe it. And that's where a guy named Andy Gullihorn comes into the picture. He wrote a song called Resurrection, which I have heard hundreds of times, but still causes a lump to form in my throat every time I hear it. And here's, what, here's just a couple of the stanzas that he wrote, remember, describing just the normal stuff of life, but in a way that we can all identify with it. I'll try to get through it. He says, My good friend Paul was lying in the back seat of a station wagon, headed to New Mexico. 
Somewhere in the middle of the night, the driver fell asleep and hit the wall beside the road. My friend went through the window like a bullet through the glass, dead before he ever hit the ground. He writes again in a different stanza, Jody is a queen reigning prone upon a couch for the, fast, for the past few years of numbered days. For the, the virus in her body and the cancer in her brain are buying up the real estate. The medicine they gave her trades nightmares for her dreams of memories too tragic to describe. And you think about what Gullihorn is describing here, these brushes with death and sickness. And I have known and do know people who have or are going through moments just like this right now. Moments of sickness, moments of grief, moments of pain, real struggle with God and His hidden will. And again, Gullihorn writes as he's writing about these different things that he's experienced. He says, I know the words of life to come are true, but sometimes they feel like salt upon the wound. When I'm asking in these moments, where are you? Where are you? Have you ever felt that tension? You ever felt that tension in your heart? Tension between what you believe about God, that He's good, that He's sovereign, that He's loving, but yet you also are faced with the reality on the ground. And that is living in a life, living a life in a world that's full of death and pain and sickness and struggle. Have you ever felt that tension? I have. I'm probably assuming that I'm not the only one in this room who's felt that. I think about this past year and the death of my friend Polly Stone, who I've mentioned before. I can't think about living in this area as she loved Camp DeSoto. And I text her now ex-husband as she's died and is now with the Lord. I text him from time to time and just remind him, hey, I'm thinking about you and I love you and I, I miss Polly too. And I remember watching Polly's funeral because it was live streamed. I wasn't able to go to it, coronavirus and all that. And watching Polly's funeral, this woman who has been just so kind to me, and not just me, but so many others, and feeling this tension in my heart, this intense grief that my, my friend is gone. Feeling this tension that, yes, she's gone, but yet, what such hope, what hope in the gospel that we have. That she believed and rested in Jesus. And so this mix, this tension between grief and hope. Have you ever felt that tension? Part of being a Christian is living with this tension in a fallen world. But the good news is we never face it alone. We've been given each other as a church. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a comforter. We've been given a good shepherd to watch over us. And we've been given the words of life as a guide to help us process this tension, this sadness and hope that seem to coexist together. We need words like the chorus of Gullahorn's song, where he says, in the midst of like my good friend Paul, who was shot out of the front windshield and died along the interstate, my other friend who is cancer is just eating her body up. And we think about this, and we, we need the words to Gullahorn's song, where he says, Oh, I believe, though it's hard sometimes, that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe it. It's really hard to believe it, but I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. Passages like the one that we're about to read give us the words and concepts that we need. Ultimately, what passages like this give us is perspective. And so we think about this tension that exists. Let's think about how this passage gives us perspective. And let's think about how Jesus meets us in the midst of that tension and offers us hope. Okay, so with that in our mind, let's go to John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. We've got a lot of ground to cover. 
I'm going to read this at a good clip. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they, brought, they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And Jesus moved, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I'm grateful for that. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look at this text. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would take these words of life and apply them to our hearts. Holy Spirit, be at work here in our midst. We long to worship you, but we need your help. So Lord, take these words, wake up our hearts, apply them to us, draw them ever closer, draw us ever closer to you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we think about a passage like this and remember that tension that we're talking about. Often in the midst of hardship and suffering, it can feel like the walls close in on us and we're trapped by the weight of our circumstances. And when this happens, we're all prone to doubt God's sovereignty and care. We may even be prone to doubt whether He even exists. And so the big question this morning that we're going to ask is, how does Jesus help us better understand a life surrounded by suffering and death? How does Jesus help us better understand a life surrounded by suffering and death? If you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to have two points this morning. We're going to see, number one, that Jesus gives us perspective in the midst of our suffering. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus gives us promises in the midst of our suffering. So how does Jesus meet us in the midst of this? He gives us perspective and he gives us promises. Let's look at that first point. Jesus gives us perspective in the midst of our suffering. This is basically verses 1 through 22. At the close of chapter 10, Jesus has gone back into the wilderness to continue his ministry and we're told that many believed in him there. That's the last verse of chapter 10, verse 42. His ministry was bearing fruit. But in chapter 11, verse 1, we're told that an emergency had arisen back in Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Now, here's what Kent Hughes said about Jesus' relationship with this family. He said, This family was very dear to our Lord. He had a unique personal affection for them. We know, that, we know from the other Gospels that our Lord liked being in their home. It was a place where he could slip off his sandals and relax and, humanly speaking, just be himself. The hospitality of this little home was famous with the apostolic band, but now things had changed, and the household was in disarray because Lazarus was gravely ill. And look at verse 3. It says, So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And the Greek word for love here is phileo, which is like a deep friendship. So Jesus, the, your really good friend, he's ill. In verse 4, we can see how Jesus' response would make the sisters think that Lazarus may recover. But Jesus knew that Lazarus would die because something greater was already planned. And in verses 5 through 7, you can almost see the sisters scanning the horizon, looking to see Jesus approach, but he decided to stay put for two more days before telling the disciples that they would travel to Judea. And this seems to fly in the face of verse 5, where we see a different word for love used, Agapao, this unstoppable, sacrificial, covenant love of God. And you think, how could Jesus love this family so deeply and not immediately leave to help them? How could he hear this and say, no, let's stay put for two more days? How, why would he not immediately go? And we look at verses 6 and 7. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Here's what the ESV study Bible said that I thought was really helpful. He said, so, so the Greek word un, so or therefore, shows the reason why Jesus stayed two days longer. He allowed his friends to go through the sorrow and hardship of the death and mourning of Lazarus because he loved them and wanted them to witness an amazing demonstration of Jesus' power over death, thus seeing his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, as we read in chapter 1, verse 14. 
the Lord does not always answer prayers as expected. And this is where John chapter 11 gives us a better perspective. At the ground level, it can appear that God is either uncaring, unwilling, or unable to help us in the midst of our pain and suffering. At the ground level, it can be very hard to keep believing the goodness of God. When apparent delays and hardships come, we must remember God's perspective, His sovereignty, and His loving heart. We have to remember that He's always good. And I don't always understand His ways, but I do trust one thing, that He's always good and He's in control. Andrew Peterson, who's a friend of Andy Gullihorn, we sang one of his songs just a few minutes ago, another one of my favorite songwriters, he wrote this about a song that he wrote. He said, Last year a good friend of mine lost his wife just hours after she gave birth to their first child. My sons were at the hospital when we went into the room to see her body before they took it away. And he saw her and cried out in agony, Always good, always good, God is always good. It was a cry that came from a place of profound faith, as if he were trying to convince himself, and yet the words were utterly true, even in the face of unimaginable pain. As we think about that scene in the hospital with his friend, a few days later, Peter would write a song called, Peterson would write a song called Always Good that he would later sing just a few days later at that lady's funeral. And here's what he sung. Somehow this, sh- this sorrow is shaping my heart like it should, and you're always good, always good. Well, it's hard to know what you're doing. Why won't you tell, us, tell it all plain? But you said that you come back on the third day, and Peter missed it again and again. So maybe the answer surrounds us, but we just don't have eyes to see. That you're always good. You're always good. This heartache is moving me closer than joy ever could. And you're always good. He also would later write, As we try to believe what is not meant to be understood, will you help us to trust your intentions for us are still good? Because you laid down your life and you suffered like I never could. And you're always good. You're always good. That's the refrain of that song. In the midst of tension, in the, in the midst of this tension, pain and suffering and death that I see on the ground level, I still remember, yet Lord, you're always good. You're always good. I don't always understand everything, but I do know this, you're always good. Skip down to verse 17 and look what happens. Jesus finally shows up. Lazarus has died. He's already been in the tomb for four days. And we read in verses 18 and 19 that the people were visiting the family and offering condolences. In verse 20, Martha finds out that Jesus was nearby and slips out to meet him. And in verse 21, her initial words are really honest. Did you pick up on that when you read it for the first time? Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. What a very honest thing to say before the Lord. But notice Jesus does not fuss at Martha for telling him how she honestly feels. And the thing that this reminds us is that God wants us to pour out our hearts to Him honestly because He loves us. I drove around in my old beat-up truck the other day and openly vented my frustration and disappointed to God, disappointment to God. I have ridden around in that truck and openly wept and prayed for God to heal and restore some of you. I have ridden around in that truck and wondered aloud why He would ever call a wretch like me into the ministry. There's some days where I'm like, Lord, what were you thinking? Who am I? Lord, I feel my weakness. Lord, I feel so helpless to be able to, be able to do anything in this situation. And I'm just pouring out my heart before the Lord. It seems like that truck rattling around through these roads is the best place to be able to go do that. 
And I bet many of you, fellow Christians, are afraid to truly uncork your heart before the Lord for fear that He may reject you. And I want you to take heart of the words of the Psalms and lean into the covenant love of God as you honestly go before Him. As you go and you kind of take the stopper out of your heart and you pour out your heart and all your fears and frustrations and anxieties and worries and you're just honest before the Lord, let, remind, let me remind you of a couple of things. Number one, that is not being unspiritual. That's being human. And if you ever are doubtful as to whether you can do that, go and read the Psalms. They're dripping with emotion. They're dripping with, where are you, O Lord? I don't understand this. What are you doing? And also be reminded that God can handle it. And He loves you. He loves you so much. You can come to Him and you can pour out your heart in front of them, in front of Him. Look at verse 22. In the midst of such great sadness, Martha still casts all her hopes upon Christ. Look at what she says there in verse 22. But even though, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She recognizes this about Jesus. Jesus offers us perspective in the midst of our suffering. That's our first point. He offers us perspective. that We don't always understand what's going on at the ground level, but we do understand that He's always good. And sometimes we're lifted up that there's a larger plan at play here. We don't always understand it. And so even as we live in that tension, there's this other thing that Jesus does. He not only gives us perspective, He gives us promises. That's our second point. This is the rest of the text. Look at verse 23. Jesus promises Martha that her brother would rise again. In verse 24, she thinks that Jesus is talking about this like future day of the Lord. But in verses 25 and 26, we hear the fifth I am statement of Jesus. And look at what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked the question, do you believe this? In the midst of your pain and heartache, do you believe this? Do you believe it? Is this your hope today as you live in that tension that we talked about earlier? Do you believe this? Do you believe what Christ says about himself? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Is that the hope of your heart this morning? Look at Martha's response in the midst of her grief. Look at verse 27. As Jesus says this, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In verses 28 through 31, Martha goes and brings her sister Mary to Jesus. And in verse 32, Mary falls at Jesus' feet and says the same thing Martha said. Did you pick up on that? Basically says the same thing. In verse 33, seeing the grief of Mary and those who accompanied her, Jesus was deeply moved. The Greek word used here describes like a horse snorting. It's an involuntary like gasp or groan. You ever had those moments where you hear some hard news and you just kind of groan and you just kind of... <sighs> That's what Jesus is doing here. He entered into their sorrow with all that he had in his humanity. And he snorts and groans against the death and sadness that sin has wrought in this world. And in verse 34, Jesus asked them to take him to the tomb. And here we read the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35. Jesus wept. Only two words long, but filled with hope. Filled with comfort. Remember Andrew Peterson singing at that funeral? Here's how the song started. 
Do you remember how Mary was grieving? How you wept and she fell at your feet? If it's true that you know how I'm feeling, could it be that you're weeping with me? Isaiah 53 Verse 3, pointing forward to Jesus, we sang about it as our opening song. Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with many griefs. In the midst of our sadness and pain, Jesus offers us a great promise that he weeps with us. In verses 36 and 37, even in the the midst of this miracle, we see mixed reactions to Jesus' tears as they move towards the tomb and towards a great miracle. Look at verse 38. Again, Jesus groans and snorts in front of the tomb of Lazarus. And here's what Kent Hughes said. He said, a a typical tomb in those days had eight occupants. It was a hollowed out room, perhaps in a hillside. It had three three indentations on one side, three on the other, and two at the end. Lazarus's tomb could well have already been occupied by other bodies from previous years. And look at what Jesus asked in verse 39. He asked that they would take the stone door away, and Martha reminds him and us of the true reality of the situation. There was zero doubt in anyone's mind or their nose that Lazarus was all the way dead. Not swooning from a coma, not passed out, that he was all the way dead. That's the reality of what was going on. And in verse 40, remember Jesus had delayed coming on purpose, and now we find out why. Look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In verses 41 and 42, Jesus' identity as the divine Son of God has been questioned. Think about this. He has said, I am of the Father. I am the Son of God. And think about how that has been questioned over and over and over and over again throughout throughout John's gospel account up until this point. It's constantly being questioned. It's constantly being questioned even throughout history and even into the here and now. But now, Jesus is about to prove that his identity is, he's about to prove his identity through another public miracle. Yet another one, validating that he is who he says that he is. And look at verse 43. The good shepherd, the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life, stands at the doorway and called one of his beloved sheep by name, Lazarus, come out. The good shepherd stands, the resurrection and the life, he stands, and he looks at one of his sheep, Lazarus, come out. It's amazing when you think about it. Jesus' words were powerful enough to raise everyone in that tomb, but he called Lazarus by name. Why? My sheep know me, and they hear my voice. I know them. Verse 44, think about this man that everyone knew was completely dead and starting to decay, not just in a coma. He comes back to life and he walks out alive in like a mummy-like fashion. He's got these strips all over him and something over his face. You know, they see, could you imagine being there and watching this guy that everybody knows was dead, all the way dead, walking out alive from the tomb? You don't think everybody and their brother talked about that? That this wasn't a public miracle that, every, that news spread? Do you think you would talk about that? We'd be crushing that on Instagram, TikTok, whatever. We'd be taking videos like, you are not going to believe what I just saw. Look at verses 45 and 46. This is bonus verses for everyone. This comes free with the price of admission. Look at verses 45 and 46. As many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
You see the contrast of responses to this very public miracle. Some of the Jews believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Others ran back to the Pharisees to tattle on him. We're going to see about that more in next week as we continue to march forward towards the cross. Remember, the cross is coming. And there's probably a mix of responses to this miracle sitting in this room right now. Some of you are drawn in and think, yes, Lord, I believe. I don't fully understand, but yes, Lord, I believe. Some of you just roll your eyes and think, yeah, right. Yeah, right. But the promises surrounding this miracle have more application to your lives than you might think. This is the application so what portion of this sermon as the landing gear are coming out and we're bringing it in. You think, what gives you hope when you experience sickness and death and pain? What gives you hope? Do you rely on yourself? Do you somehow ask the universe for help and guidance? Do you say something like, I just need to have faith? The big question is faith in what? Faith in who? The past 18 months have made us all ask the big questions of life in the midst of the COVID pandemic as we are daily surrounded by sickness and death. And we ask the questions, does God care? Does He not see the reality on the ground? Does He even exist? Many of you have wrestled with those questions. I've wrestled with those questions because I'm human just like you. And walking by faith and not by sight is hard. It's really hard. I feel like the psalmist, Lord, don't you see what's going on? Are you going to do anything? But passages like this that we've read this morning remind us not only that God cares, that He sees us, and that His Son Jesus weeps with us and draws near to us in our pain and suffering when life doesn't make sense. And we, those who trust Christ by faith, have the present hope of a great high priest and a good shepherd who hears us and He walks with us and He gives us the Holy Spirit that intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words when we honestly come before the Lord and we uncork our hearts before Him and say, Lord, help! The Spirit intercedes for us before the Father. We have a Savior who experienced suffering and death himself, was placed in a tomb, and who walked out alive again. And he has secured for his beloved sheep a true and living hope that death will not have the last word. Let me read you another passage that gives us another perspective on our fallen world from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. We think about this tension that exists. What do we do with it? Where do we find hope? Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation that was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." This is the perspective that we need, the heavenly perspective, grounded in the hope of future glory with Christ, all by sheer grace, all by sheer mercy, and secured at the cross. This heavenly perspective that you know if you are in Christ that come what may, this future hope of glory lays before you. And you can sink your teeth into it. You can bind your hope to that as we say, yes, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. And this is really hard right now. 
But yet I also know that this hard circumstance does not have the last word. There is a future hope of glory that is laid there and has been secured by Christ himself at the cross. And so it is a true and living and lasting hope that will never disappoint me, come what may. Christians will face trials like everyone else. But we'll be able to stand up and bear them like no one else. Why? Because we have a good shepherd who loves us and who has secured our way to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. So what? What do we think about that? Paul writes, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we think about how do we dwell in this tension? How does Jesus offer us perspective and promises in the midst of a life that's popmarked by sin and death? There's no way I could cover all of this in the time that we have. I get that. I understand that. But we think about this. What does this look like in the here and now? What does it look like for us to see our present circumstances as a light and momentary affliction? Think about what Paul is saying there. It's a light and momentary affliction when placed up against the backdrop of an eternal weight of glory. This hope that we have, come what may. What does that look like in the here and now? Listen again to the words of Andy Gullihorn as we close. This is part of that same song that I opened at the beginning called The Resurrection. He writes, Sometimes it's like Lazarus. You come to roll the stone away and watch him walk out back alive, walk back out alive. Sometimes it's like my good friend Paul breathless on the interstate, mother weeping at his side. Either way, it's something I will never understand, but I trust enough to take you at your word. Oh, I believe, though it's hard sometimes, that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe, but it's really hard sometimes. But I sink my teeth into this and trust this, that you are the resurrection and the life. And death does not have the final word. And so how do we handle and how do we live in this tension in, this, in the here and now? This tension that exists between what we believe and know about God, that He's good and He's loving and He's sovereign, but yet the reality on the ground that we live in a life that's, we live in a world that's marked by sin and sickness and death. The thing that we sink our teeth into, the thing that we hold tightly to, and the thing that we rest in, come what may, as we're able to be honest before the Lord like Andy Gullihorn, Lord, I believe, though it's hard sometimes, I believe and rest in the fact that you are the resurrection and the life. That you, and you alone, you have the final say. And that I have this eternal weight of glory laid up before me. Life might be hard right now, but it always, but it always won't be. Because of what you've done. And you think about the hope of heaven that is laid before us in Christ. And this weight and this living hope. It's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to put our shoes on. It's a reason to walk by faith as we trust our Good Shepherd, who has walked before us and calls us to follow Him, even into the scary places. Because He he doesn't call us to go anywhere that He Himself has not gone. And He turns around, and do you know what He reminds you of? I am the resurrection and the life. It's hope. Amen? Let's pray.